welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's visit to Tulsa, Oklahoma today to honor the victims of the 1921 race massacre of hundreds of African Americans 100 years ago. In addressing the deliberate attack on black prosperity with the burning and looting by a white mob of what was called the Black Wall Street, Biden addressed the wealth gap between African Americans and whites in this country and offered a number of plans to invest in and revitalize black communities. Joining us is William Darity, the Samuel Dubois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African American Studies and Economics at Duke University and co-author of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. We will discuss his new report at Duke University, The Tulsa Massacre, Racism and the Black-White Wealth Gap, and the programs offered by the Biden administration to address the injustice and inequality that persists. We'll also look into reparations, which in the case of the three survivors Biden met with today might come too late since they are aged 107, 106 and 100. Then we'll assess the effectiveness of the walkout of the Texas legislature by Democratic lawmakers and what Democrats can do to stop the implementation of state laws suppressing the votes of Democrats, which also allow for the counting and certification of electoral results by partisan Republicans. Matt Engel, who directs the Texas Democratic Trust and the Lone Star Project, a political action committee that aims to be an aggressive fact-checker on the Republican Party at the state and national level, joins us to discuss how Democrats have to focus on where the votes are in the House and Senate, then pass laws there to protect American democracy and reverse authoritarianism. Then finally, Stephen Levitsky, a professor of government at Harvard University and the author with Daniel Zyblatt of How Democracies Die, joins us. We'll discuss the open letter at the New America Foundation he and 100 other experts on democracy signed, Statement of Concern, the Threat to American Democracy and the Need for National Voting and Election Administration Standards, and How American Democracy is Heading Towards a Point of No Return, unless the American people wake up before they find themselves in a Republican-run dictatorship. And joining us now is William Darity, the Samuel Dubois Cook Professor of Public Policy and African-American Studies and Economics, as well as the Director of the Samuel Dubois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. He's the co-author of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, and he has a new report at Duke University, The Tulsa Massacre, Racism and the Black-White Wealth Gap. Welcome to Background Briefing, William Darity. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And in Tulsa today, the president said that hate never goes away, hate only hides, that if you give hatred a little bit of oxygen, just a bit of oxygen by its leaders, it comes out from under a rock. And that certainly what happened uh, with Donald Trump in launching his uh, Bertha Canard that began his campaign. So, in effect, Trump has given white Americans racists to come out from under a rock and strut their stuff, and now we have it out in the open. And do you think uh, today's ceremony will do anything towards healing this divide in this country? Well, 
we never have had a history of healing divides when it comes to actually pushing black Americans closer to having full citizenship. Uh, that's always been something that, in quotes, has been divisive. Uh, and I certainly don't think that because something is divisive doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't try to pursue it. Uh, certainly if it's uh, the just and righteous thing to do. So, um, so n- no, I, I don't suspect that today would bring about a greater degree of healing. What's really critical is whether or not there is a sustained sea change in American attitudes about race and racism. And, of course, the Tulsa 1921 riot, the bur- massacre, the burning of the so-called Black Wall Street seemed in a way an attack on black prosperity itself and the president did make a number of recommendations today an additional hundred billion dollars over five years for disadvantaged businesses 10 billion for community revitalization 15 billion for new competitive grants targeting neighborhoods where people have been cut off from jobs schools and businesses investing 31 billion to support minority-owned small businesses etc but from the work that you've done at Duke, William Darity, it would take, what, something like nine centuries of massive investments in black businesses, etc., to bring us back to parity. So let me say two things. The first is uh, what was impressive about the president's speech today is the fact that he told an accurate story of the atrocity that took place in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I think that is a first for an American president. And in that context, though, we have to recognize that the Tulsa massacre was one of 100 or so of these that took place between the end of the Civil War and the 1940s. Uh, And they were, as you put it, intended to destroy black prosperity where it had been achieved or... uh, they were intended to prevent black Americans from participating fully in the electoral process. So I I want to applaud the president for telling the true story today. Uh, On the other hand, the types of solutions that he has put forward that ostensibly would close the racial wealth gap won't do very much about closing the racial wealth gap. Uh, The amount that would be required to eliminate racial wealth differences in the United States approaches about $11 trillion or more. And so, as you pointed out, if individual donors who were very, very generous made $1 billion contributions on a monthly basis, so $12 billion uh, in, in the course of a single year, it would take us nine centuries to get to $11 trillion. Um, and I must add, that the sum that you described, which approaches about $200 billion in the president's proposal, actually represents less than the total retail sales that all black American-owned businesses currently have. It's about 2.6 million businesses with a total retail sales of only $270 million dollars. Uh, Walmart alone, uh, I'm sorry, $270 billion. Walmart alone uh, has retail sales in excess of $550 billion on an annual basis. 
And again, I'm speaking with William Doherty, the Samuel Dubois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African American Studies and Economics, as well as the director of the Samuel Dubois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. He's the co-author of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. And he has a new report at Duke University, The Tulsa Massacre, Racism and the Black-White Wealth Gap. So, obviously, the three survivors of the massacre who President Biden met with and spoke with at length today, one is 107, the other one's 106, and the other one is 100. They definitely deserve reparations, but it may well be late in their case. The figure that you came up with, $11.2 trillion in the wealth gap, it comes from the Federal Reserve 2019 survey on consumer finances published in late 2020, and as you point out, the actual figure could be worse. But the wealth gap, just to quote from your report, the wealth gap in the United States now is about $130 trillion, and black American descendants of U.S. slavery are 12% of the population. If they held a share of the nation's wealth consistent with their share of the population, they would possess a total net worth of $15.6 trillion. And in order to be more conservative, you put the American wealth at $110 trillion, so you brought it down to $11.2 trillion. So that's the sad reality, right? That that is the reality, yeah. And and the wealth differential is the best economic indicator of the cumulative intergenerational effects of American policies that have built white wealth to the detriment of black wealth. And I I would say that the starting point for the racial wealth gap really is the failure of the federal government to provide the formerly enslaved in the aftermath of the Civil War with the 40-acre land grants that they they were promised as restitution for their years of bondage. Uh, simultaneously, the federal government was utilizing the Homestead Act of 1862 to provide one and a half million white families with 160-acre land grants in the Western Territories as the nation completed its colonial settler project. And so, as a consequence, uh, white Americans get a substantial financial stake in American life at the same time as which black Americans are being denied such a stake. And there have been repercussions across the generations. But what you're suggesting in your book, and I take it in general, William Darity, is that in order to make up for the impracticality, albeit welcome, the investments that President Biden announced today and the idea that uh, it would take nine centuries if wealthy donors put in billions, that's not going to happen. I take it what you're saying here is basically that the only way to really close the black-white wealth gap in this country is through reparations. So walk us through, through that. Reparations, through reparations that uh, must be funded by the federal government. Right. Obviously, uh, that's for, the only game. Two, yeah. Yeah. For two reasons. One is that the federal government has the capacity to do it. Uh, you know, if you were to take the combined budgets of all state and local governments in the United States, uh, every municipality, every state, their total budgets would be about $3.1 trillion. So they would have to devote their entire budgets to a reparations fund for four consecutive years to get into the vicinity of $11 trillion. 
federal government, on the other hand, has demonstrated its capacity to generate large sums of money overnight in the midst of the pandemic uh, and also uh, during the Great Recession. So, uh, so the federal government has the capacity, but the federal government also is the culpable party. The federal government is responsible for the legal and authority conditions that produced the atrocities that led to the racial wealth gap that we observe today. So, I mean, this is not a project that is getting a lot of wind behind it. Reparations, I think, is for most politicians is a non-starter. How do you break the ice on that? I think the ice has been broken, and I think it was broken during the phase of the presidential campaign in 2019, where for the first time in my lifetime, a number of presidential candidates actually uttered the term reparations, which had been anathema to them prior to that. Uh, And there's also been a major change in American public opinion. Uh, If we go back to the year 2000, the best survey that I've seen indicated that only 4% of white Americans endorsed reparations for black Americans. Uh, When we get to the year 2018, the figure is 16%. Still low, but substantially different from 4%. And the most recent surveys that have taken place in 2021 indicate that it's now about 30% of white Americans who endorse reparations. So the pendulum is swinging in the proper direction. I don't know if it's sustainable, but I think it's a, it's a positive sign. And just to put the $11 trillion into context, I believe at least $5 trillion was just handed by the Fed to corporate America without any publicity whatsoever, or very little. And then if you look at the CARES Act and... Biden's proposal. The American Rescue Plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, they, exactly. All those added up come to about the same figure, right? Yeah. And, and, of course, in our book, in the final chapter where we lay out a proposal for reparations, we suggest that a reasonable amount of time to complete the reparations plan would be a decade. We wouldn't want to see it happen longer than that. But if you took a decade, you were essentially talking about one and a half trillion dollars per annum, which is uh, which is a, is is a very manageable figure. Well, I guess the trend is in the right direction. Then this is, today, I think, is a pretty good moment for people to realize why you're bringing this up because of what happened a hundred years ago in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where this incredibly prosperous neighborhood was deliberately destroyed, and hundreds were killed and it was buried and uh, covered up for a whole century, pretty much, and it's come to light. So I guess we should be thankful for what happened today. Well, I I think, as I said, it's a positive that the president told the story accurately. Uh, But we have to keep in mind that, of course, Tulsa is perhaps one of the most extreme instances, but there were a hundred of these massacres that took place in the United States and virtually all of them resulted in substantial destruction or appropriation of black-owned property. Well, William Dowdy, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thank you for talking with me.
And again, I've been speaking with William Dowdy, who's a Samuel Dubois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African American Studies and Economics, as well as the director of the Samuel Dubois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. He's the co-author of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. And he has a new report at Duke University, The Tulsa Massacre, Racism and the Black-White Wealth Gap. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back assessing the effectiveness of the walkout of the Texas legislature by Democrats and how Democrats have to focus on where the votes are in the House and Senate, then pass laws there to protect American democracy and reverse authoritarianism. There was blood in the streets, bodies everywhere. The carnage left 35 locks bare. Said the dead were 23, but there were 500 missing families. All my exes live in Texas, and Texas is a place I nearly. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Matt Engel, who directs the Texas Democratic Trust and the Lone Star Project, a political action committee that aims to be an aggressive fact-checker on the Republican Party, both at the state and national levels. Matt has served as Executive Director of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and from 2000 to 2004, he was Executive Director of the House Democratic Caucus. Welcome to Background Briefing, Matt Engel. Hi, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Matt. And, of course, the walkout by the Democrats in the Texas legislature is getting a lot of publicity. I don't know how it's playing in Texas amongst independents and even amongst Republicans. So let's start there, because clearly we've got to talk about this problem at the national level. But let's begin at the state level. What's the local reaction from the people in Texas? Well, it's mostly positive, but I think uh, on top of that, though, is a a lot of surprise because people are used to Republicans getting their way on everything in Texas. Uh, they control every lever of power, and uh, it's very, very hard for Democrats to win even a skirmish. And uh, But what you saw in Austin was uh, the House Democratic leadership, really masterfully led by the caucus chair, Chris Turner, playing a weak hand strongly and really turning the tables uh, on the Republican majority. Uh, they uh, were able to string out uh, the consideration of the bill. They were able to make a very strong legal record so that we'll have our best case possible in the courts. And then they were also able to get some of the other Democratic priorities that needed to be passed, passed before they got up just uh, within a couple of hours of adjournment and then were able to leave and the Republicans were uh, scrambling and couldn't get it together in order to uh, uh, call a quorum back. And so it was uh, really, really fine work done by a uh, Democratic Party that's outnumbered in the, in the House and in the Senate. 
Well, apparently in the final weeks, Republicans really upset the Democrats by working behind closed door to finalise this bill in conference, and they left Democrats in the dark, and they denied any input in the final legislation, and and that led State Representative Terry Canales to excoriate the Republicans. So, you know, saying that the House Democratic Conference has not, in caps, even seen a legislative council draft. Well, this is egregious. I mean, how much is this a reaction to the to the kind of arrogance of the Republicans? It it it, it is certainly partially that. And what happened was really even worse than the terrible circumstance you just described. Because not only did they uh, uh, pull together the bill in secret, but rather than making the bill a combination of the House and the Senate uh, versions, which were both bad, uh, they removed some of the provisions that weren't quite as bad and replaced them with provisions that had never had any hearing, never been considered before, and put them into the conference report. And that was infuriating, especially since it was done in the dark and uh, without any of the Democratic members, and they, uh, who all represent districts that are majority-minority, uh, without any of them having in, in, any input at all, and you often hear the term in uh, redistricting litigation or in voting rights litigation, uh, intentional discrimination, which describes a circumstance in which legislatures uh, take actions that are intended to uh, harm and to cut out the influence of minority representatives. That's exactly what you saw here. It was intentional discrimination on steroids. Well, what they slipped in, though, was so egregious, and that is they included limiting early voting on Sundays to the hours of 1 p.m. to 9 p.m., and which is obviously aimed at killing off the possibility of the souls to the polls tradition in black churches. I mean, it's naked. It's obvious. It, it was just a, a, a straight obvious shot at souls to the polls, African-Americans who have traditionally gone and voted on Sunday after services. And, to, that is, and Texas was one of the first states that initiated early voting and allowed souls to the polls. And now you've got a Republican majority eliminating it. And on top of that, something else that they added in that's ex equally egregious is they uh, have allowed for uh, partisan judges to overturn an election, call for a new election uh, if there's enough questionable ballots that it might be that, that are that are greater than the number of, of votes that one candidate won by. And so you can have all types of harebrained accusations about uh, illegal or fraudulent voting, and, and a judge doesn't even have to conduct the inquiry or pre present the evidence to show what the vote really was. They can just call for a new election. It's, uh, it's anti-democratic. Uh, it's just foreign to the way that our country is supposed to work. And that, of course, is what we're seeing in Arizona with this ludicrous vote recount. You don't need evidence. You just have to have a, <laughs> a feeling or you can basically go ahead and cynically do it. The problem is in this country, so many Republicans believe that there's such a thing as voter fraud and that the seven out of ten Republicans believe that Donald Trump won the last election and 54% Republicans believe that the people that assaulted the Capitol on January the 6th were Antifa, who's aiming to make Trump look bad. 
So, well, it. I'm sorry. You no, I was going to say, I, I just don't know how you deal with this. These alternative universes of information. It's just shocking the extent to which so many Americans believe stuff that has no foundation in truth. Even the Attorney General, William Barr, who was definitely in Trump's pocket, he said it was a clean election. The guy that conducted the election, Chris Krebs, said it was the cleanest election in decades. So is there a way to get the truth to these people? Well, I, I don't know that uh, we can uh, uh, make people who are irrational uh, suddenly become rational. And uh, as you're, as you said, you had uh, even Bob Barr said that uh, uh, the election was fair. The Texas Republican Texas Secretary of State uh, uh, testified under oath that the elections in Texas were fair uh, and that there was were, were not riddled with fraud. Uh, but that doesn't satisfy them. What you've got is uh, Republicans who want to win elections, whether they win. Uh, they want they want to be uh, returned to office whether they win elections or not, and uh, uh, it's it's fundamentally anti democratic. And I think uh, the Texas State House demonstrated pretty much the limit of what you can do if you're in the minority. It was a masterful job of playing a weak hand strongly, uh, and it is also just a bugle call, just a uh, just a plea for Washington to use the power that we have, use the fact that we have a majority in the House. We, we, can, we can get to 51 votes in the Senate and to use those, if for no other reason, to protect democracy in this country. And I think we have to move heaven and earth, do everything that we need to do to give Joe Manchin in West Virginia and Kristen Sinema in Arizona the, the assurances they need in order to support suspending the filibuster at least for voting rights legislation and again i'm speaking with matt angle who directs the texas democratic trust and the lone star project a political action committee that aims to be an aggressive fact checker on the republican party both at the state and national levels matt has served as executive director of the democratic congressional campaign committee and from 2000 to 2004 he was executive director of the house democratic caucus so so what you're arguing then is that what happened in texas was helpful but it's a short-term victory because the governor can call the, another session and plans to do he's even he's even threatening to cut their paychecks so you're saying you gotta the democrats have got to work where they have the votes and that's in the house and in the senate is that what you're saying uh, ab absolutely what we did was we bought some time in texas we bought some time in order to uh uh, push it down the road and give Congress some room and some time to act, but they've got to act because eventually the Republicans will come back into special session and they will pass this. These bills are something even worse. And, uh, uh, and, and because you, you, you don't, if you don't have the votes, you don't have the votes and the re, uh, uh, and they will double down on that with a gerrymandered redistricting plan in order to lock in that majority. And, uh, and so it's very, very important. I think the most important thing in this country uh, right now is for Congress to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Restoration Act. Uh, uh, it's called was H.R. 4 last cycle. It hasn't been introduced yet this time. But that is the, the most important thing that could be done in this country, and it needs to be done uh, before we get to October 1st and all these maps are drawn. So where does things stand then? 
what are you hearing on Capitol Hill? Obviously, I'm astounded that anybody would enter a race where the <laughs> the the game is rigged. Why enter a, a rigged casino? That's true, casinos are rigged to some extent <laughs> by definition. But if it's blatantly rigged, it just makes a fool out of yourself. I mean, I know it's a frustrating situation, but where's the political message that's needed to make Americans, not just Democrats, but Americans, independents, even Republicans, aware that a fundamental assault on democracy is underway. And we could have, we have a Republican Party that's controlled by Donald Trump that has made a decision that they'd rather cheat than compete. Well, and, and, and I don't even think it's a political argument. It's a patriotic argument. It's about saving our country. It's about saving American democracy. Uh, because what they are talking about is fundamentally changing our democracy into an autocracy uh, that, uh, uh, that will end uh, the, the, the freedoms that we've enjoyed for 200 years. And I know that that sounds uh, over-the-top apocalyptic, but I think that's where we really are. And I'm distressed that there isn't the sense of urgency uh, in, uh, in, the, uh, in the Capitol among Democrats and certainly not among Republicans. I think it's really important that uh, uh, instances like what we saw in Texas, that that be used uh, uh, to really send the message to Washington that, uh, look, you, you've got uh, uh, real patriots uh, who are fighting tooth and nail with every uh, bit of uh, energy and, and every bit of guile that they have to overcome uh, a, an oppressive majority in these states. And we need Congress to step up and use the majority that we've won uh, and, uh, uh, and, and save our democracy. You're exactly right. It's going to be impossible to get good candidates to run for the state house, or the state senate, or any entity that, uh, where districts are drawn. Uh, in, in Texas, we've made steady progress in county levels uh, uh, where they can't change the boundaries. But in any uh, uh, body in which the boundary can be changed partisanly, uh, that you've got Democrats and just any fair-thinking person at a disadvantage. And that's going to get worse if we don't pass the federal legislation. So H.R. 4, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, what about H.R. 1 and S.B. 1? Well, H.R. Uh, 1, SB 1, they are very, very important, and they reform uh, the, uh, uh, the political system, particularly as it relates to redistricting. And they're very, very important. But the reason that I say H.R. 4 or the John Lewis bill is more important is because what it does is establish preclearance at the front end. It makes uh, uh, states that have a history of discrimination, and certainly Texas has the worst history in the country of intentional discrimination, it makes them subject to uh, not being able to enforce any law they pass, including redistricting laws, until they've been reviewed or approved by the Justice Department. So if H.R. 4 had been adopted and were in place now, none of the uh, provisions, or n nearly none of the provisions, that uh, the Republicans have included in their bill in Texas would ever be adopted because they would never survive preclearance. And so that preclearance provision is a very, very important and uh, and when it was uh, overturned as part of the Shelby Supreme Court decision back in 2011, that's what really set the stage for all these egregious attacks on basic uh, voting rights. So do you think that the Chief Justice 
John Roberts recognizes what he did in that majority decision that he signed uh, to get rid of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act? Did he, did he, do you think, I mean, it's like the same thing with the Supreme Court's decision uh, on Citizens United. I mean, did they realize, you know, whatever they were thinking in terms of the law, can they accept the consequences and accept responsibility for the consequences? It's so obvious what's happened. It's, it's, it's a really good question. My guess is that they did understand the substance of what they've done. John Roberts, while he has been moderate on some issues over his career, he's never been uh, uh, moderate or even reasonable on voting rights and civil rights issues. However, what I don't think that they anticipated is what, the, what happened to the Republican Party, that the Republican Party would be taken over by, uh, uh, by autocrats, and, it would, and they would uh, set themselves up for uh, uh, somebody like Trump to come in and just really dominate uh, uh, their party. And so I hope that those results of their actions really play, particularly on John Roberts' mind, because... Uh, this is not the Republican Party he was active in before he became a judge. Uh, this is a whole different thing. There's nothing conservative about this party. It's oppressive and reactionary. It's not conservative at all. Well, Matt Engel, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Matt Engel, who directs the Texas. And again, I've been speaking with Matt Engel, who directs the Texas Democratic Trust and the Lone Star Project, a political action committee that aims to be an aggressive fact-checker on the Republican Party, both at the state and national levels. Matt Engel has served as Executive Director of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, and from 2000 to 2004, he was Executive Director of the House Democratic Caucus. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how... American democracy is heading towards a point of no return unless the American people wake up before they find themselves in a Republican-run dictatorship. Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Levitsky, who's a professor of government at Harvard University, whose research interests include political parties, authoritarianism, and democratization, and weak and informal institutions, with a focus on Latin America. He's the author of Competitive Authoritarianism, Hybrid Regimes After the Cold War, and co-authored with Daniel Zyblet of How Democracies Die, as well as a signatory to an open letter at the New America Foundation Statement of Concern, the threats to American democracy and the need for national voting and election administration standards. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Levitsky. 
Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And it would seem that the situation is quite dire, and I think arguably the coup attempt on January the 6th didn't end. Uh, it sort of metastasized into voter suppression and gerrymandering, of course, and the polls indicate what seven out of ten Republicans think that Trump won the election. Uh, 54% believe that uh, the people that stormed the Capitol were Antifa out to make Trump look bad. So you have a real s problem in this country, but where the rubber meets the road in terms of these new, new laws that are being passed, just what's been passed so far could overturn the, the 2022 election and lead to a Republican victory in 2024. So I guess the purpose of your letter is to wake up the American people or the Democratic Party or both? Both. Um, now, keep in mind that the Republicans could also legitimately win the 2022 election. Historically, the, the party in opposition almost always uh, wins the, the first midterm election. Um, so even without gerrymandering, even without voter suppression, it's entirely possible that the Republicans would uh, win and perhaps take both the House and the Senate. Um, look, it, it is very difficult for Americans from the President of the United States down to your, your neighbor to come to grips with the fact that uh, American democracy could collapse, that one of the major political parties has given up on democracy, that there could be some form of a coup. Um, these, are, these are really jarring events. If you had asked me these questions 10 years ago, I would have laughed you out of the room. This is this change is happening. Uh, I think in a, in a way that that we were that we were insufficiently attentive to that we did not anticipate, and is now happening very very quickly. The the Republican Party's authoritarian turn is has accelerated since Trump left office, and it's happening very very quickly. So yes, we are trying to sort of keep up with events and to keep both citizens and uh, also journalists and politicians attuned to just how dangerous things are. So when we wrote How Democracies Die in 2017, and we wrote our first op-ed in 2016, um, it was kind of a shocker to hear that Donald Trump was um, likely to be an authoritarian president, that Donald Trump was likely to put democracy at risk. There was a lot of disbelief about that. Now, four or five years later, very few people question the fact that Donald Trump was, was an authoritarian figure who who threaten our institutions. Now we need to come to grips with the fact that, that really from below, from the grassroots up, the Republican Party is becoming a, an authoritarian party, and they're taking steps. We don't fully know the impact of the voter suppression initiative. So far, the evidence suggests that it might not be as great as we fear. But um, what, what I worry about even more than that, and even more than gerrymandering, is the reforms that have been taken in uh, in Texas and in Georgia and in Missouri and Arizona elsewhere that allow uh, Republican officials, either legislatures or secretaries of state, to either bypass or uh, bypass local election authorities, overrule local election authorities, um, and and effectively overturn the popular vote. Um, I think that if if the 2024 election or even the 2022 elections are stolen, it will be through quote-unquote legal means. It'll be by throwing out ballots in your rival strongholds on technicalities 
or baseless, uh, baseless claims of fraud. That can be done legally. Um, and we don't, we haven't yet to come up with sort of the legal or institutional means to stop it. Well, in effect, the Republicans are getting a second bite at the apple, along with voter suppression and gerrymandering, and the census is basically giving the, the Republicans two more seats in, in the House in Texas. But by being able to control the count after the election and the certification, uh, we've seen what's going on in Arizona and the kind of people that they've appointed in Arizona, a lot of these delusional far-right activists are being appointed to these boards that they're setting up. So in, in the case of Texas, one of the things that they passed in the middle of the night without the Democrats being in any way informed, and that led to the Democrats walking out, was they deliberately went after souls for the polls by restricting the times that you could vote on Sundays from 1 p.m. to 9 p.m. So traditionally, of course, the souls of the polls go to early morning church and vote in the morning. So it's pretty naked what they're doing. They've more or less decided to cheat rather than compete. Isn't it that obvious? Yeah, no, that has, been, that has become clear. And I think one of the things that was made, uh, unfortunately, crystal clear with the 2020 election is, or the aftermath of the 2020 election, is it, it became clear to Republicans up and down the line that not only would they not be punished electorally for overtly trying to thwart an election, overturn an election, behave in a in nakedly undemocratic manner, but they would be rewarded by their base. That Republicans who were in favor of overturning an election would be rewarded by their base, would win primaries, would gain public support. And those who stand up for democracy find themselves ostracized, marginalized, perched. So what explains that, though? Is it just a very successful big lie campaign that has convinced Republicans that voter fraud exists? I mean, obviously, nobody in the Republican Party or in the ranks among the base listened to when Bill Barr, the former Attorney General, who was appeared to be completely in Trump's pocket, he said it was a clean election. So did the uh, person in charge of the election, Chris Krebs. Is this just the fact that we're in different silos of information, that people only believe what they hear on Fox and Breitbart, and, and that's it? Well, it's certainly partly that. It's, it's not simply the, the, the floating of a big lie. Not every big lie succeeds. It's, it can only take root in a certain climate, in a certain context. And the context in the United States... It certainly is partly to do with social media and siloing, but I think there's a deeper problem. One is that our parties have become intensely polarized, deeply, deeply polarized. And so you see behavior like this, a willingness to believe conspiracies, a willingness to act on those conspiracies, a, a willingness to violate the law and even engage in violence against your rivals. You see it in places like Spain in the early 1930s, mid-1930s, Chile in the early 1970s. Uh, Italy and Germany in the in the interwar period, p context of extreme polarization. And I think it's exacerbated in the United States case. It is an asymmetric polarization because of who the Republican Party represents. The Republican Party represents the demographic group, the the social and cultural group 
that founded and dominated this nation for two centuries. White Christian men, in effect. And um, the, the loss of the, not only of the electoral majority, the electoral dominance of, of white Christians in this country, but also the social status, the dominant social status of white Christians, which we go back even half a century to when I was a kid. White Protestants really filled every top position in every, in every social, political, cultural, economic hierarchy in the country. And over 50 years, that's changed dramatically. That is deeply threatening, and that is fundamentally, I think, what is polarizing our country. There are very few societies, very few, I can't name a single democracy in the world that has undergone a transition in which a dominant ethnic group loses its majority and loses its dominant status. That's a major, major transformation, and I think that ultimately is what's fueling. It's exacerbated by social media, but if you wanted to really get at the root causes, it's that transition. So let's talk about your alarm bells that you and a hundred other experts on democracy and democratic institutions are sounding here. I take it you don't think that the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, if it were to pass, and that of course is unlikely because you can't get 10 Republican senators to agree, even though Lisa Murkowski has been working with Joe Manchin on that, so you mean that you're suggesting that SB1 and HR1 are the only only way to go? I think they're a... Uh, look, I, I don't think there is a single policy or law or strategy that, is, that, that, that guarantees a successful defense of democracy. We're going to have to move on multiple fronts. We're in very uncharted terrain. It's really hard to know. I... I don't think that uh, that the, the laws being debated in the House guarantee anything, but they're certainly a useful step, uh, ensuring that uh, all American citizens have equal and fair access to the ballot is not only inherently central to democracy, but it is uh, crucial in this in 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 this coming election because very, very clear that Republicans are targeting Democratic constituencies, um, college-age voters, um, African-American voters, lower-income voters who, who are disadvantaged in going to the polls. So this, uh, so the, the action on the voting rights front is, works mostly at the margins, but I think in a very close election can be very important. We're also, and this is going to be harder institutionally, it may even be harder constitutionally, but we need to take action to to create, as as our letter said, uh, a, uh, a a system of federal standards of, of of elections. It cannot be the case that a state legislature decide um, to either arbitrarily throws out the votes of of, of uh, a rival party stronghold or sets aside the, the, the actual results of the, the, the popular vote and sends an alternate slate of, of electors to the Electoral College. The kind, there is so much room for abuse in the current system because we have a very, very um, loosely structured, decentralized system that relied for a very long time on the assumption that partisans were not going to abuse their position as electoral authorities to their own partisan advantage. And um, unfortunately, that assumption, if it were ever true, is no longer true.
today. We relied for decades and decades on forbearance, on restraint of our election officials. On election, we, we relied on, on the, the, in the belief that election officials, Democrats and Republicans, would do the right thing. Uh, and we can no longer... We can no longer do that. So, unfortunately, the only way to guarantee a fair election at this point is a pretty radical restructuring of the electoral system, which is going to be immensely difficult. But it's we thought it important to at least begin this conversation. And, of course, the Chief Justice John Roberts' decision to strip out Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act it should be really clear to him now, now that he's sort of the, become the kind of swing vote on the Supreme Court, that it hasn't worked out. Whatever his his thoughts were, and I'm not sure what they were, that we're over it, you know, that we don't need it anymore, that we've moved on. That's clearly not true. I mean, it's the same thing with Citizens United. I don't know whether they've recognized, the conservatives, the incredible damage it's done to American democracy. But that aside... When you were saying earlier that at the heart of what's going on on the political right in this country, which is which is embracing authoritarianism and the GOP, we've never had a president, an ex-president, with the power and influence that Donald Trump has. I mean, you know, Jimmy Carter went and built homes and, and George W. Bush painted pictures of little dogs, but this guy controls the GOP. So when you say that it's just quite about demographics and that white... Protestant men are no longer in control, is the subtext there racism? I mean, it's beyond... Racism is obviously an important part, and, and, and I, this is not my area of, of expertise, but it's, it's bigger than racism. It is, it is about national identity, it is about culture, it is about a, a broader understanding of who is in and who is outside of our, of our community. Um... And I, I think from a certain perspective, it's inextricable from racism, but I think it's, it's way too simple and too narrow to simply assign it to, to, to racism. People feel, many Republican voters, and I'll get back to Trump in a second, feel like the country that they grew up in is being taken away from them. Is there a racial component to that? Absolutely, at least in many cases. But it's not just about racism. What Trump's genius, I think, and this is very unusual for a single leader and particularly a former president to retain this kind of hold on a party, but Trump is something we haven't seen really at least since George Wallace, if not earlier, which is a successful populist, somebody who really tapped into a certain sector of the, of the population's anger and resentment at the, the status quo. Trump brilliantly maybe accidentally, but brilliantly, um, tapped into uh, 40% of this country, roughly 40% of this country's deep fears about the, the, the changes going on in, in our society. He spoke directly and compellingly and uniquely to, that, to those Americans who feel like the country they grew up in is being taken away from them. He told them that. No other Republican politician... For a generation, for more than a generation, with the partial exception of Pat Buchanan, who is willing to cross these lines to go there, to say these words to these voters. And the, the fact that Trump maybe unwillingly, or not unwillingly, maybe accidentally, I don't know how, how whether this was an, a, a strategy or just Trump being Trump, but for whatever reason, 
his willingness to cross those lines and to go to those places and say those things and speak to those voters earned him intense loyalty, the kind of loyalty that you don't see every day, the kind of loyalty that we saw to Perón in, in, in Argentina, to Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, uh, perhaps to, Long, to Huey Long had he, had he lived longer in, in the United States. Um, but he is, in that sense, a very, very successful populist because he tapped into not just people's views on minimum wage or their views on trade, but tapped into deep fears, resentments, and anger. Well, of course, he started his political career, or at least the one, the most recent chapter, uh, with the the Bertha Canard, and in many ways that was inherently racist. It, it gave people permission to be openly racist again. So. Again, there right, is that component, and he started his campaign out on the escalator at Trump Tower talking about the Mexicans being a bunch of rapists and murderers. Yes, which taps into a deeper set of fears about the transformation right. of this society. We have become a society, we had become a society, in which an African-American could become president. Um, for many of us, that's a sign of great progress over the last half-century. For many others, it is a uh, it, it triggers really really deep fears. So when President Biden, as he did the other day, called on Congress to act in the face of a Republican assault on democracy because of the Texas bill, he uh, said that the attacks are aimed at black and brown Americans. I mean, they're aimed at all Americans, aren't they? I mean, I don't understand why the Democrats and uh, and the, their leader, President Biden are making this the number one agenda, both to protect and defend democracy at home and abroad. We, we see what's happening abroad, where democracy is being undermined in places like Turkey and Hungary. They've already been destroyed in Russia, and Putin and Xi Jinping are openly saying that democracies don't work and we get things done, we're more efficient, etc. So the assault's been underway abroad, as well as here at home, is there a way to start a movement that makes this the number one priority? I take it, in many ways, is that what your letter is designed to do? It is, but it's really hard. And I think the Biden administration itself is divided over this. I mean, there are there is a, a compelling argument, unfortunately, that Americans are, well, first of all, it, it still takes a lot to convince Americans that our democracy is under threat. We are, all of us, all of us, grew up taking for granted the stability of American democracy, taking for granted that no matter how recklessly our politics... You can listen to the next of background, the rest background briefing on WMNF.org, our HD3 station. Coming up next is Midpoint with Janet Sherberger, right after NPR News, which is coming at you right now.